So this morning I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 3 verses 15 to chapter 4 verse 7. So feel free to bring that up on your Bible so you can read along. If not, it is on the screen behind me. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, many, uh, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you have who are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age. He is no different from a slave. Although he owns the the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we are under age, we were in slavery under the elemental forces, elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, for you are no longer slaves, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Good morning, everyone. Um, as Carl said, my name's Jack. If I haven't met you before, I'm the other pastor here. It's great to be jumping in again to, uh, to this great book of Galatians. Um, as we get started, I've got, a, I've got a question for you, as I, as I like to do at the start. And this question is this. Can you think of a time 
uh, when you thought you were prepared for something, but you just miss one crucial detail, and it kind of throws everything out. Think of a time when you were prepared, uh, when you thought you were prepared for something, but you just miss one crucial detail. Uh, a few years ago, I was on holiday with some friends, um, or I, I went on a holiday with some friends and went to Japan, um, but I was a student. And being a student, obviously, I wanted to get the cheapest tickets possible that were available to me. Um, but the problem was, getting these tickets meant that I'd be, I'd be traveling alone, and it also meant an overnight stopover in another city in Japan before getting a connecting flight uh, the next day. Now, if you know me, you'll know that I had two things that were working against me right from the start. One of those things I've kind of said already a few weeks ago, I have no sense of direction. If you drop me off somewhere, I won't find my way out. In a shopping center, I'm lost straight away. If I'm walking in a straight line, I can even get lost then. It's been known to happen. But the other thing that you'll know about me is that I'm also not great with details. I can, I can miss small things. Now, this is a recipe really for disaster for any lone traveler who's out there. And I knew this, knowing this about myself, in the lead up to that trip, I planned out as much as I could in advance. I made sure I had the right times written down for the different planes I had to get on. I made sure I knew which train station to get off at in, uh, in a place called Osaka when I was meeting my friends. One of my friends even made me sit down with them and watch a YouTube video of someone walking through that train station so that I had a point of reference, so I could see and visualize where I was going. That's how uh, little trust he had in my ability to get where I needed to go. The day arrived, plane was leaving, my family said goodbye to me, thinking this is probably the last time they'd ever see me. I got on the plane in Adelaide, I got off it in Melbourne, I got on another plane in Melbourne, and flew straight through to an airport just outside of Tokyo. I arrived in Japan at 9pm, I was like, yes, I made it, I'm alive, I'm in the right country, I've even got all my bags, following those details, this is great, I'm on the right track. Okay, next step. Now, this was my plan. Find a nice, comfortable steel bench in the 24-hour departure lounge. This is going to be my bed until the next connecting flight the next morning. Remember, student, cheap accommodation. It was great. So I walked around the airport trying to find my bed. But then the, the lights in one section of the airport went out. And I was like, that's fine. I just need to find my bed and we'll, we'll be fine. So walking around trying to find this, this, this departure lounge that was open for 24 hours a day. Then the lights in another section of the airport turned off as well. I was a little bit more nervous, you know. I looked around me, noticed that actually all the airport stores were closing. Actually, everyone was walking out of the 24-hour airport. The place was completely shutting down. It was about 9.30, almost 10 p.m. at this time. And I was thinking, what's going on? Why is the 24-hour airport shutting down? I grabbed out my plane ticket, Adelaide to Melbourne, check. Melbourne to, to Narita Airport in Japan, check. Why does the next airport say Haneda Airport to Osaka? One crucial detail I've missed. I was in the wrong airport. I got out my map and realized that the airport I actually needed to be in, a small detail I missed, was 80 kilometers away. And I was in the wrong place. The airport was shutting down, everyone was leaving, and I had no way to get out of that place. Now, don't worry, there is a happy ending that we'll get to a bit later on. <laughs> but I thought I'd mapped it out all perfectly, but I couldn't have been more wrong. That one crucial detail that was missing on the plane ticket to get where I wanted to go. 
Can you think of a time when you thought you were prepared for something, but you missed one crucial detail? We just read out a part of Galatians in the Bible, and in this book, or really it's a letter to a bunch of churches in Galatia, the author Paul is writing about a group of people who think that they've mapped out things perfectly, but they haven't. See, they're reading the ticket wrong, just like I did in that airport. And they're trying to get all the churches in Galatia to read the ticket wrong along with them. See, this group believe that the way to God and the way to being on good terms with God, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, is found by works of the law, by obeying the law that God had given the Israelites centuries beforehand to show them how to live as his people. Essentially, what this means is that they believe that through their human performance, they could be good enough for God, that they could get to God. You'll remember Paul spent the first two and a bit chapters hammering home that this isn't what God requires of us. We're not saved through our human performance. We're saved by what Jesus has done for us. Paul says, you're reading the ticket the wrong way. Now, Paul wants his readers to really understand the purpose of the law that we've been talking about and how God's promises to Abraham, which means our salvation, is not contingent on following the law. You hopefully picked up an outline on the way in this morning. Point one there should say, the promise being kept. The promise being kept. Uh, when I looked at my plane ticket, I became confused as to where each airport was leading. But whereas I was confused by which airport was going where on my plane ticket, the Galatians were f- confused about something called the promise and the law. The Galatians were being convinced that the ticket said the way to God was by works of the law, as I said, and that God's promises to them wouldn't come true unless they did this, unless they followed the law. But Paul wants them to know that God is a promise-keeping God and works of the Lord don't make, his, um, don't make us his people. Faith in Jesus is what does that. Paul kicks off in verse 15 by saying, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say enter seeds, meaning many people, but enter your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What, is, what does all this mean? Well, I think a helpful example uh, is maybe to think about Carl's uh, final will and testament. We've all read it, right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, we haven't read it. But, uh, but once Carl's decided what goes into his will, I can't do anything about that, can I? I mean, not that I could really do anything about that beforehand, but I can't decide to add to it or set aside what Carl has written down in his will, what he has decided is going to happen there. This is what Paul's opening argument about the promise and the law is. He's essentially saying, just as no one can add to a will, so it is in this case. God has made a promise, and the way that promise will come true isn't through God changing his promise, Because God is a promise-keeping God. Nothing is going to change his will. And no one else can change that either. The promise that's being referred to is the promise of an inheritance that we read about in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham and to his offspring. It's a promise that actually spans the, the whole entire Bible that we could really spend weeks digging into together in a whole another sermon series. But to give us a a bit of a snapshot of what this promise means, in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham essentially three things. We've looked at a couple of those things already throughout this series. 
God says, I will give you offspring. To your offspring, I will give land. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will give you offspring. To your offspring, I will give land. And in your offspring, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And then Paul says something interesting in verse 16 this morning. He says that this offspring, it's not the the multiple offspring of Abraham. Paul writes that this refers to one of Abraham's offspring. One person who is Jesus. In Jesus, we've been reading in Galatians, all the nations of the earth have been blessed. And how? We have been rescued from the penalty of sin. The penalty of our rejection of God in order to live how we want rather than in relationship with our Creator. The penalty of sin being to face God's judgment. But remember what we looked at last week. Paul wrote in Galatians 3 verse 13 that we're made right with God the same way that Abraham was made right with God. Not through following works of the law, which came after Abraham's time, but through faith. Faith in Jesus as the only one who can make us right with God. Galatians 3 verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who was hung on a pole. In other words, Jesus bore the punishment we deserve for our rejection of God on his own shoulders by dying on the cross. So that those who believe in him, who trust in what Jesus has done, are made right with God, are justified by faith, seen as blameless and guiltless of sin. That's what the promise refers to, our ultimate salvation from sin through what Jesus has accomplished in his death on the cross. And Paul writes in verses 15 to 16 that nothing is ever going to change this. God's promises were never changed throughout the whole entire history of the Israelites and that follows through to today. God is a promise-keeping God who's shown this in his son Jesus. Paul writes in verses 17 to 18 that if the law which was established after this promise to Abraham changes the will of God, then the promise is void. If the inheritance depends on works of the law rather than faith in Jesus, God has broken his promises, we still remain under the law and we no longer remain under the promise of salvation through Jesus alone. But Paul reminds us at the end of verse 18, But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. In other words, the law does not change the promise of God to mean that salvation is through works of the law rather than faith in Jesus. Remember, God is a promise-keeping God. See, the Galatians are being convinced to read the ticket wrong, are being convinced that the way to God is through what we can do, but the ticket says the way to God is through faith and not our own accomplishments by following the law. Now, this has come about by God's grace, God's undeserved favour, in that we haven't earned any of what God has chosen to give us in his son Jesus. There's a fair question raised at this point, and Paul asks it for us in verse 19. He says, why then was the law given to the Israelites at all? Point two on your outline, uh, outline should say, the law serving its purpose. Paul writes, why then was the law given at all? And he answers that question. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring to whom the promise referred had come. 
What does it mean that the law was added because of transgressions? Well, Paul says this another way in a different letter that he wrote called Romans. In Romans chapter 3, he says this, No one will become righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In other words, the law acts as a sort of magnifying glass that helps us understand that we sin. Helps us see that we do reject God, that we do disobey Him, and that we can't be in a right relationship with God because of it. The law was added so that it would reveal sin and the fact that we aren't right with God. That is, Paul writes, until Jesus came and fixed this. Paul, in the second part of verse 19 and 20, tells us, The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Makes complete sense, right? It's it's a pretty strange verse, with angels doing things, with different mediators doing things. What What is Paul getting at here? I think what Paul is saying is that whereas the law was given to the Israelites through a mediator, whereas the law was given to the Israelites through Moses who received the law and then passed it on to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 19, God himself appeared to Abraham. No communication between another party involved. Just God himself making sure that his promise is heard loud and clear. In other words, it seems like Paul is reiterating that there is no way something else could change the promise that God made to Abraham. That no one can change the good news of who Jesus is and what it means that we can trust in him to make us right with God. The next question Paul asks then is in verse 21. He says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? I mean, if, if the law can't bring salvation and make us right with God, but it just reveals our sinfulness, then what is it really actually, what's it there for? Is it, is it really actually just working in opposition to the promises of God? And Paul answers, absolutely not. He says, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come through the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. In other words, Paul is saying that scripture highlights the reality of sin and shows the need for a saviour. It makes God's promises more and more desirable as we come more and more to realize that we need Jesus. That it is faith in Christ alone that saves. How does the law function then? Well, it functions to confirm the promise that God has made. Not to discard the promise, not to set aside God's promise. And it makes the promises of God something that we look to and know we need, that we desire having no other way to get to God except through Jesus. The ticket says, faith in Jesus, not works of the law. And a promise-keeping God has made this possible. The next two points on your outlines this morning highlight an incredible reality that Paul wants us to understand in light of everything we've read this morning. Firstly, that we are children of God. That we are unified as children of God. And secondly, that we've been set free. Point three in your outline should say unified as children of God. Now, I've talked a fair bit about that ticket this morning that, uh, that I had read the wrong way. 
But what about the other things that were necessary for my trip when I went along to Japan? See, I also had to bring along my passport with me. Now, a passport uh, that tells a little bit about who I am. It tells you uh, what my name is. It tells you where I'm from. It tells you my gender. Uh, It tells you about where else I've traveled to in the world. Uh, In short, it lets the country I'm entering know my identity and know where I'm from. What Paul says in verses 23 to 29 is that for those who trust in Jesus, their whole identity is changed. They're no longer seen as people who are held in custody under the law. Their passport now identifies them as a child of God. Paul says that the law acted as a sort of guardian or a tutor, meaning as something that leads us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith and not by what we can do. And now that this faith has come, Paul writes, you are a child of God and no longer an object deserving of his anger and judgment for sin. I mean, what a turnaround. Those who trust in Jesus, we're told, Paul writes that baptized into Christ and clothed with Christ. Now, the idea here is of someone um, being immersed in water. It's the idea of baptism that Paul is talking about. Immersed of, in water, the idea of being immersed in death and then rising again to new life with a new identity founded in Christ. Now, when I was a child, I used to dress up a lot as Batman, and I'd run around the backyard. I even had a little bat cave that I loved to play in. That was a tent that was set up in the backyard as well. Now, when I put on that costume, it was like I had a whole other identity. I'd run around the backyard, I'd save Gotham. It was great. But when I took it off, I was just Jack again. I could put it on, I could take it off. What Paul is saying here is that those who believe in Jesus as the one who makes them right with God, they're not just putting on a costume, they're not just putting on something that falls off again, that gets old and that needs to be changed. What Paul is saying here is that you're a new person. You are no longer someone deserving of judgment. God sees you through the same lens as he sees his son, as right with him. And he sees you as his child, someone he loves, cherishes, Someone he loves enough to give everything to save. We read in those last few verses of that chunk of 23 to 29 that things like heritage, like social class, like gender, nothing stops this reality. When you look around the room at the people around you who trust in Jesus along with you, we're told that we're looking at our brothers and sisters, that we have a shared identity as children of God no longer as people deserving of judgment. The enormity of that, I hope that's sinking in um, across this whole series that we're doing in Galatians. This is enormous news. Just as we're told that Jesus is the one to whom the inheritance was promised in the first few verses this morning, we read in verse 29 that if we belong to Christ, then we are Abraham's offspring. We are those heirs according to the promise that we read about at the start. We are unified as children of God in Christ. Just as unified as we are unified as his children, we've also been set free as his children. Point four, children of God set free. Paul writes in chapter four, verse one to seven, that whereas we were once slaves to sin, we are now set free as children of God. That whereas we were once heirs who were subject to the law, 
When the time came, Jesus redeemed us. He saved us that we might become God's children. Actually, he writes that we might become God's sons. When Paul was writing, the idea was that an inheritance would be passed down to the firstborn son. So when Paul writes that we received adoption to sonship, he's saying we receive the status of God's son. We receive the inheritance, despite the gender, despite heritage, despite social status. And more than this, we're told that God dwells with us by the Holy Spirit, who enables us to cry out to him and call him our father. Whereas once the barrier of sin kept us as objects of God's wrath and judgment, now through faith, we're seen as his children and we can call him our father, knowing that he hears us, knowing that we have access to him, that he is with us even now, knowing that our new identity as his children is secure in Jesus. We are no longer slaves to, free, uh, to sin, but are free. We're children of God. Can you see how God has worked throughout all of history to defeat sin and death once for all by sending his son that we might be with him? The story arc of the Bible points to this amazing reality. That's what Paul wants the Galatians to see on the ticket. That's what Paul wants us to see on the ticket this morning. The way to God and relationship with him isn't through living a good life. It's not by trying in our own power to right the wrongs that we've committed against God. It's through acknowledging our need of a saviour in Jesus. It's about saying, I believe that Jesus is the one who can save me and not myself, and I put my trust in him. I told you there was, there was a happy ending to the story I began at the start. I was, I was in the wrong airport. I didn't have any idea how to get out to where I needed to go, but as I was walking towards the exit, I saw a stool uh, on the side of the exit with a man standing there. And there's a third thing that you don't know about me yet. It's that I'm actually really excellent at charades. Amazing at it, actually. Now, there's, there's a lot of miming involved, some charades, but eventually uh, this guy had kind of, a, like a, kind of a fun, weird kind of conversation where I kind of pointed at my ticket and said, say, like a bus, need to get to a plane and kind of thing. Anyway, this guy was really nice. He pointed me in the right direction to go, even helped me get my bags and get them out the door into a bus so I could get to the right airport, so I could find my comfortable steel bench to spend the night sleeping on. I had someone to point the way for me, help me get where I needed to go. That's what Paul's doing for us this morning, in pointing us straight to Jesus as the one who can make us right with God. Now, a passage like this one this morning, it brings out a whole heap of questions. And if you're here this morning and are wondering who Jesus is or want to know more about him, please seek out the answers to those questions. Chat to us who are on staff here or to a friend maybe that you came with. Because where we all stand in relation to to God, that is the most important question that we'll ever ask. We have a God who's worked throughout history to bring us to himself, despite our rejection of him, and despite deserving his judgment. Instead of remaining as people who deserve his anger and judgment, we are seen as his children, no longer slaves to sin. It's important to note again that this doesn't mean that we don't sin, because we do. But this is no longer our identity. We are no longer slaves to sin, standing condemned under the law. We know that God forgives. 
And we know that we can come to him as children, knowing that he's the kind father that will never let us down. He will never turn us away or reject us. But he wants us to cry out to him as our father, the one who loves us, the promise-keeping God who will never break his promises to us of salvation and life in his son's name. Let's pray now and thank God for that. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise. Thank you for Jesus and life that we can have in him. Thank you for the way that you've worked throughout all of history to bring salvation to us, even though we didn't deserve it one bit. Thank you that you love us, Lord. Thank you that you can know that we can know you. Please help us to live as your children in this world, knowing that we're loved by you and seeking to love you in return. Amen.